All right, the boys are back in town, coming off a fresh mailbag episode and a bye week. We are back with a bang. Dad, how's it going? It's going good. I actually am back in town. I was in Portland. Did you notice I was gone for three days? You know, I did notice, and I took the opportunity to break in the house a bit and had quite a large party. I I encourage that, okay? We don't call it parties. We call it social gatherings. It was, you know, chill. Police came around two. Um, Just kidding, of course. You know, we are going into the last week of our preseason. I have a game this weekend against the mighty Santa Clara Broncos, my alma mater. That should be fun. And then we have our first real game of the season next weekend in Phoenix, which should be really fun. I'm looking forward to that one. That will be interesting for you to return. I assume you're going to be playing at the Santa Clara Stadium. Yep. Where you played, you know, how many games over four years? That's sort of uh, a lot. very familiar territory. So yeah. It'll be weird to be in a different uniform. It'll be nostalgic for sure, but it's also, you know, pretty cool seeing everything come full circle, you know? Father's invited. <laughs> you're definitely invited. I don't know if you'll be able to get in, but I'm sure you'll be able to catch a view from somewhere. Yeah, I think if I stand in the parking lot, you know, that parking structure, yeah. if I look down I, on the fourth deck, I could probably see a bring, part, of the, part bring, of the field. Bring your binoculars and you should be great. Okay, I'm excited. Okay, so let's get to our guests. Yeah. This is a, another installment of our Experts and Leaders series. Um, we actually timed this with the current drop of the Oakland Roots kit that came out today and is is super fuego. We have on the pod entrepreneur, philanthropist, and current chairman and lead investor of the Oakland Roots. Right. He is Stephen Aldrich, an extremely impressive guy, and I could have talked to him for hours. Yeah, one of one of the a few people who was instrumental in bringing roots to uh, into the professional soccer ranks to Oakland, very involved uh, at the ground level. But we ended up speaking to him about much more than the roots. In fact, that was a relatively minor part of our discussion with him. We really focused on uh, his his uh, business experience and his leadership experience. Fascinating. Yeah. As someone who is very interested in entrepreneurship and leadership, and leadership within business, I was extremely excited to talk to him from the jump. And the way he speaks, um, it is no surprise he is where he is. Um, he has started, he sold his first company at 26 right. and to Intuit. Uh, he's been the CEO of multiple companies, uh, was the CEO of a company that went on to sell to GoDaddy, yeah. held an executive position at GoDaddy before starting with The Roots. The guy is extremely impressive, and he's one of the nicest people you'll meet, which is, you know, an amazing bonus. Yeah, you know, in the uh, 80s and 90s and 2000s, he was kind of the forefront in, in the Silicon Valley and and starting up companies. And so his experience is really fascinating experience, kind of ground floor, right, uh, and building up businesses. But I, uh, I really appreciated his discussions about leadership because he's been a leader at every company he's been with, whether it was... Or even his fencing. He was a fencer in college. Imagine that. Yeah. No, with no fencing experience, by the way, before joining the team. But he ends up being captain of that fencing team. And at every stage in his life, he's led other people. And he has a lot of great insights about being a leader, what it takes. Yeah, one of the things that really resonated with me was that he harped on having a growth mindset and never wanting to stop learning and evolving and growing. And I think that's something that 
we as a society don't really, we kind of overlook. We think that we get into a, a profession and that's, we are who we are. Whereas he harped on continuing to gain new skills yeah. and you can really, you know, learn whatever you want to learn and become whoever you want to become. Um, it was really an, an extremely inspiring conversation. I think, you know, people can get a lot out of this one. Yeah, I would say inspiring, enlightening, uh, educational. And, you know, for a guy who's had a lot of success uh, and great success, he's also talked about, uh, you know, failure and and not succeeding and how that really is a cousin of success. Yeah. And uh, lot, I learned a lot. Hard to believe, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so let's get to the episode it's a great one. It really is. Part of our Experts and Leaders series brought to you by Cafe Fanny Granola and Ale Industries, a sponsor of the Oakland Roots, now a sponsor of Marathon Minute. Yep. Some of the best beer in the game. I can attest to that because I am a beer guy. You can. I don't drink any other alcohol, just beer. And You're... I drink their beer. Oh, yeah. All right. Without further ado, let's get to the beat by Raph and enjoy marathon minute let's go wow we're matching <laughs> oh all right quick i'm gonna put on the, uh... <laughs> Now it'll be slightly different. Okay, there we go. All right. We are joined by Stephen Aldrich, entrepreneur extraordinaire, philanthropist, and current chairman of the Oakland Roots. I don't know if, if that means you're like my boss's boss's boss or you, you're the head honcho. So thank you so much for, for taking the time and joining us today. Um, how, how's it going today on this lovely what is it? Uh, Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening. Yeah, early, early Tuesday evening. Uh, it's great. Thanks for having me. Uh, I don't think anyone ever calls me head honcho. I think <laughs> more, more one of the team. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk through you know what we've been doing. And uh, being an entrepreneur is is fun, and building teams is something I really get excited about. So excited to take the conversation in lots of directions today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean. I, I didn't necessarily know too much about you other than kind of reading, um, you know, prior to doing my research for the podcast, but when you were announced as uh, part of the roots and the chairman, I obviously did a little bit of research and found out that you were, you know, this worldly businessman with tons of experience and leadership. And I was instantly drawn to you and your story. And then when we had the chance to be on our fam Friday calls and just in the interactions we've had with the roots, um, I've really just admired your leadership and um, just the way you carry yourself and the way you run an organization. So I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. I don't even know how much we'll even get into soccer, but just I think you have so much to offer as a leader. And I, I just want to let you know from the start that I've admired, you know, your leadership early on in our in our work together. But kind of right off the bat, I think it's always interesting with people like yourself, people who have become very successful um, to hear about their upbringing. So can you just talk a little bit about um, your upbringing, uh, where about that was, and did you have an early interest in in entrepreneurship or sports or what was that like growing up? 
Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I see obviously we've got your your dad on the on the podcast here with us. And so my story will touch a lot on my my folks. So you know, I grew up in a combination of Ithaca, New York. So my dad's professor, he was at Cornell. And then when I was 12, we moved down to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and he's at Carolina and still at Carolina. And the interesting thing is, you know, as a professor, you're not really thought of as an entrepreneur, like that's not the first word you associate with someone in the teaching profession, but my dad studied small businesses. And I didn't really know this until I was much older, but when we went, for example, on a year long sabbatical with my folks to Europe. So we lived in London and in Oxford for about a year between those two cities. My dad was studying entrepreneurs. And you know, again, I was too wow. young, didn't really understand what it was that he was studying, but he was looking at what made businesses more or less successful based on their environment. And so I think that whether I knew it or not at the time really rubbed off on me. Yeah. And as I think my first entrepreneurial experience, you know, like many folks at, at, that are my age, although I don't think you can do this anymore, was as a paper boy. So I took over a route and you know, was delivering papers and then uh, wrote some software in high school for a relative and then uh, wound up creating a business in college that my roommate and I call these summer storage enterprises. Uh, which was a combination of loft building and storing people's stuff for the summer where we said, hey, let's rent a big self-storage spot, borrowed one of our friend's trucks and went around and picked up people's stuff uh, and said, we'll bring it back to you in the fall. And that was that was my real first true business and put signs up all over campus and, and it actually worked. There were lots of things that didn't quite work as we had hoped, yeah. uh, but we worked well enough to do it two years in a row. So, so growing up in a college town, you figured out as a high school kid, what college students and their folks might need in terms of storage and kind of making the transition from one year to the next? Uh, it was a little bit later than that. That would have been awesome. Yeah. Uh, I went to a, a school, interestingly, not in Chapel Hill for high school. I went to a school in Durham, the North Carolina School of Science and Math, uh, which is a whole nother story. Uh, so my, my entrepreneurial endeavors at Carolina was when we were actually on campus. So uh, okay. we, were, we were already in college when we and we basically picked that idea up from another uh, guy a couple of years older than we were and said, all right, let's go make this happen. And that's before internet, before yeah. cell phones. Like yeah. it, it was a serious old school business of word of mouth and trying to figure out how do you get in touch with someone when no one has a cell phone back in the, in the late 80s. So yeah, you know, it was really an interesting experience. So one quick learning, and this is one of those areas that I think any entrepreneur hopefully would, would relate to, the idea that you have and then how it gets executed has to be adaptable. So we first year said, let's take anything. And we realized as we were trying to transport rugs and bean bags and things of all different shapes and sizes that like, wow, this is really a lot harder than we thought. And how are we going to figure out where in the storage space everything is? So the second year, we were way smarter and said, let's just take things that are basically square. So they're boxes, they're refrigerators. Uh, and that just made life so much simpler and easier for us. So it's one of those things you you don't really understand a business until you're in it and running it uh, to know what what's going to work well and what's not going to work well. Yeah, it's it's actually funny you talked about having um, the paper route as one of your first kind of entrepreneurial endeavors. I actually wrote down a question of 
did you have one of those classic young entrepreneur moments where, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of super successful entrepreneurs have those stories of like, oh, I went door to door selling candy or something like that. And so you answer that question myself, you had that moment, which is great. You talked about how your dad was studying entrepreneurship and you weren't kind of aware of the gravity of that until maybe later on. How did you kind of answer the question? I'm going to pose this out on my dad after because I'm actually curious if he knows my answer. How did you answer the question of the classic, what do you want to be when you grow up, when you were uh, a kid? Um, I am not sure uh, if I gave consistent answers over time. I think for a while I was interested in sports. And then for a while, I was interested in being a scientist. And so I think as I was heading off to college, the answer was consistent for a couple of years, which was, all right, I wanted to be a scientist. And I wanted to be a scientist who worked in international business. And I didn't know exactly what that meant. Uh, but interestingly, my dad was able to, to again, uh, come in and say, well, all right, if that's what you're interested in, I was out in California for a summer doing an internship and he was able to connect me with someone at HP uh, who was doing innovation. And, and I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. This is really cool. Yeah. Uh, during college that, that dream changed a bit. <laughs> we can come back to that, but uh, you know, that changed a bit, but that was for a couple of years, that was definitely what I thought I wanted to be. If you went younger than that, I think I would have said, I really don't have any idea. Yeah. So I'm going to, this is a quiz for you, dad. Uh, I'll give you a hint. There should be there should be two pretty clear answers here. But what what were my two answers? My they're pretty consistently over the past twenty seven years at this point. When people say, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" I, I there was either two answers. What what were those two? There this we go. Pressure. Wow. This is this is a pressure. I'm putting you on the spot. We hadn't talked about this. Do you think we need any theme music in the background? Yeah. yeah, we can add that. We can add that. Post. This is the moment of truth where I, you figure out whether I've been listening. Yeah. To you uh, <laughs> my two answers would be not necessarily in this order, but I think in this order: a professional soccer player and a CEO of a business. Bravo! Wow, that's that is Un, correct. Unrehearsed, by the way. That is correct. Done. Yeah. Well done. So he is right. Uh, that is funny because when I or growing up, I mean, still to this day, uh, I am a professional soccer player. So that I've kind of been able to check that. But also, I've been passionate about saying. I think it's probably shifted a little bit. You know, now where I, when I was in high school, I say I want to be a CEO. I think now that's kind of shifted to, I want to be, I want to run my own business or have a leadership role within business, something like that. But kind of, you know, I talked about it briefly about how I admire you as a leader. Um, did you consider yourself a leader when you were younger? Um, yes. Interestingly, in, in a way that, uh, again, later on, I probably was able to put some words to it, but I think that was interesting was I did a bunch of different things. So I was a, a cello player in the orchestra and I was a basketball player and a goalkeeper for the soccer team. And I enjoyed being in the yearbook. And so I was doing all this different stuff and there weren't very many people who were able to bridge all those areas. And so uh, that was, I think maybe the first inkling that when I thought about leadership, it was much more about bringing people and connecting people together to get something done than it was about you know any other definition of leadership. And, and right. I think that that was interesting 
to me because there was a bit of a self-realization when I was at this uh, boarding school. It's called the North Carolina School of Science and Math. And they took kids from all over the state. And there were some incredibly brilliant people at the school. And so you quickly realize, wow, there are some people that are definitely smarter than I am. Yeah. Uh, and so that can't be the, the crutch you can fall back on. There are definitely people that are more athletic. And so you kind of go through the list. But the, the kind of superpower that I think I was starting to discover was this connective tissue. Like how do you bring people together to get something done that any one person can do on their own? And I think I started to build on that uh, during college and then after college. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I know um, I've heard some, I forget where I've heard it, but I've heard studies or um, people talk about how um, some of the most successful organizations, it's not necessarily the people who are top of their class who have, who are in the leadership roles. It's people who, you know, maybe fl not flunked out, but left college early or something, but have that leadership ability of tapping into the people who finished top in their class and being able to bring everyone together for a common goal. So, you know, that's great that you recognize that at a young age. Although the flip side of that coin is that a lot of times people gravitate in, in terms of looking for a leader to the person who does something best, mm -hmm. the best guy on the basketball team or the best guy on the soccer team. And oftentimes the best guy is not the best leader or anything close, not, probably more often than not, they're not. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think that the, you know, and, and you can see this on a soccer team too, like you can have incredible individual players, but going forward or defending is about the team and the organization and, you know, being willing to sacrifice yourself maybe in one game for the team to win. Like, Hey, if you've got to be the guy tracking back, because you know that's the role in this game, then right. are you willing to make that sacrifice? And I think there, there's a bit of this heroic person myth that's out there that leaders are, are all knowing and standing apart. Yeah. And I just think when you start to tease apart the way things get done in the real world and the way that things get done today, when, when most products or most services are so complicated, there's no way one person can understand everything required to deliver it. In, if that's the case, then you need to find a way to create these teams. And, and for me, that's the mark of, of true leadership is, you know, are you willing to uh, be selfless in order for the team to achieve something great? This is kind of an overbroad question, but while we're talking about leadership, are leaders born or are they made or maybe a little bit of both? Yeah, it's an awesome question. Uh, so this touches a you little bit. You hear that, bit. Max? That was an awesome question. <laughs> that was an awesome we, question. We get excited when people say we ask good questions. He gets more excited than I, I really do. Excited. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of debate on this nature versus nurture in a whole yep. variety of fields. Uh, the So for leadership, and let's take for a second that there are uh, inherent qualities that people have, uh, but there are learned behaviors. And there's this very interesting concept that Carol Dweck has popularized. And if you haven't read Carol Dweck, totally worth reading her research. She's currently at Stanford, actually, in the psychology department. But her concept is called growth mindset. And the idea is that if you are willing to put the effort in and complete the reps, then you can, in fact, uh, change behavior, you can change your skill level. And it's been shown 
in not just kids, it's been shown in adults, it's been shown in sports situations, in professional situations. And the story I like to tell about growth mindset uh, that usually gets a pretty good laugh is I've got a younger brother. And, uh, and you know, if my parents, you know, had encouraged me, you know, when I fell down and they got me to stand back up and they're like, oh, great, you know, now Stephen's eventually walking. And if my brother, the first time we've fallen over, like, oh, you know, Daniel's a crawler. He's never going to walk. And, and they just never encouraged him to stand back up again, right? He never would have yeah. learned to walk. And if you think right. about that for a second, the way that we learn as kids, learn to walk, learn to talk, learn to write, it's through thousands and thousands of repetitions. We don't even think twice about encouraging our kids to get back up and try again. And so we are wired to learn, but as adults, interestingly, we become self-conscious and we start to say, well, I tried that or worse yet, I'm not willing to try that because I'm probably not going to succeed the first time. Well, that basically says you're hardwired. So she talks about growth mindset and, and what those characteristics look like. And the alternative to growth mindset is a hardwired mindset. And uh, to learn in any capacity, you have to be willing to make mistakes. Yeah, I'm personally a huge believer in uh, in the entirety of the growth mindset. I, I think a lot of society thinks that education stops with either you know high school college or potentially some sort of um post-college uh education and that's you know you find a career path and that's you know you're kind of stuck in that um whereas if everyone had this growth mindset you know who would know where we would be as a society and people as individuals could you know really start doing so many other things that's one of the reasons i mean i have a tattoo of a butterfly on my arm one of the reasons is for my sister but also it's to symbolize like constant evolution and growth i think you laid that out brilliantly i wasn't planning on going on this tangent but i mean that's amazing so kind of going back to your your journey you know you talked about the business you started in college you studied physics at north carolina and you were a four-year fencer I mean, we talked about this briefly in our call, but I think for the listener, they might be curious of um, how you got into fencing and, you know, what was that experience like? And also, I was a little confused. I would have assumed that you would have studied something in the business world. Um, so kind of what drew you to physics? I mean, you talked briefly about your interest in science, but could you talk a little bit about that experience at UNC? Yeah, for sure. So coming out of uh, high school, my assumption was I was going to walk on at, at UNC. I'm a goalkeeper and was going to go play keeper at, at Carolina. This was in the late 80s and Anson Dorrance was both the women's coach and the men's coach and uh, the men's team was really good and the women's team was really good. And uh, I assumed I was going to go in and get a material science degree. So again, that concept of coming into school and, and being a scientist, but eventually you know, doing something in business and science and international in some way, whatever that meant, I wasn't sure. And so as a freshman, we had three a days before the beginning of school and moved into the dorm early. And that's you know, crazy. Yeah. North Carolina was hot. It was humid. Uh, I hurt my back. So I was, I was in the training room getting STEM treatment before and after every practice. Then we'd have practice, come home, back out, practice home. And so, and it's after, not humid in North Carolina in <laughs> July and August. In, in, in July and August, you know, we had the Cooper test, which I don't know if uh, y'all still do that, but it was you know, 90 degrees and 90% humidity. It was, it was hot. Uh, and as I was thinking about the experience that I was having, uh, I realized, I don't think this is really what I envisioned as my, uh, my college life. 
And so I called Ants in and apologized and said, hey, I'm, I'm just not going to play. Uh, he was super gracious and poked me a little bit on it and said, are you sure? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, interestingly, fast forward, my dad and Anson are really close friends uh, at Carolina. Oh, nice. so, uh, so it's fun to stay in touch with them all these years later. Yeah. And so uh, I was then going to class and thinking about how to use all this time that I'd suddenly found. And my roommate came back. He and I went to high school together, played soccer together in high school. And he's like, hey, the fencing coach posted this sign saying he's looking for refugees from other sports. You got to come try it out. <laughs> All right. Uh, so went down to, to tryouts in Carolina at that time. I had a coach who'd been there for, at that point, over 30 years. And the ACC no longer had fencing as an ACC sport for championships because there weren't enough teams. So he didn't get very many scholarships or scholarship support. So we had a few folks who had incredible pedigree as fencers, but everyone else, he basically had to train from scratch. And so... Uh, I went and I was like, this is amazingly cool. And it was both a cerebral sport and a physical sport. And you know, when I think about coaches, you know, Coach Miller, who retired pretty recently after over 50 years of coaching at Carolina, was willing to put the time in. He basically said, look, if you want to be at the gym any hour of any day of the week, I will meet you there. And That's awesome. if you to work in, I will, I will help you get to where you want to go. And so you know, as opposed to, it was interesting when I look back, like, so I was worried about the time commitment to soccer. Yeah. And then I wound up being a fencer and starting from scratch. So practice five days a week, going to fencing club, three to four hours, two additional nights a week, lifting almost every morning, then gone every weekend for tournaments for four years. Wow. Uh, that wound up being a lot of time. Yeah. But the coach uh, was so dedicated to the individual athlete and to the sport and we to each other on the team to teach the next generation uh, that I wound up being an amazing experience. And my senior year, we went to the NCAAs against all odds. Uh, and it was, it was a pretty remarkable four years. So I, I think about Coach Miller is definitely an inspiration for you know, what someone can do to change the tra trajectory of, of your uh, performance. And it was remarkable. Yeah. Do you still fence at all or is, or is that long gone? I don't. I don't. I, uh, I was post that tournament senior year. I picked up a blade for a couple of alumni tournaments and went to a tournament out in California uh, just after our son uh, hit an age where he could see it and bumped into a friend in Central Park once who I fenced with. He invited me down to the New York Athletic Club and that's about it. So I went back to soccer uh, post Post school, but it was it was remarkable to have that type of experience uh, and just great friends, great teammates that that really was formative. Hey, Dad, could you uh, could you grab me some blueberries from the fridge, please? Sure, the organic. Yeah, of course. Yep, here they are. Oh, and um, maybe some strawberries. Okay, yeah, we got them in the fridge. Okay. Yep. Are, are are there any chia seeds by chance in the pantry? You got a bag of chia seeds. You want uh, those? Yes, please. Okay. Um, can I, maybe some honey as well. I we'll get the honey. That's in the other cabinet. Okay. Uh, work out here. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, are there any ripe bananas? Uh, yep. Yeah. Got one. Can I have one of those, please? Yep. Do you know what I'm doing? Uh, you're giving me a lot of exercise and a lot of chores to do, but no. well. It's Cafe Fanny o'clock. Ah. I'm fixing a bowl, and I'm making you one too. With all the those ingredients? 
you know what they say, trying something new is best with your kids. So here okay. we go. I'm going to give it a go. Fresh fruit, cafe granola, a little bit of milk. I'm going to do almond milk. I do the regular milk. All right. And we'll give you our review next epi. Okay. Stay tuned. I'm guessing based on everything I've learned about you in our 20 minutes together, that you've got not only the leadership gene, but the uh, competition gene and need it. You need competition, yeah, whether it's soccer or fencing or whatever it is. Yeah. And it, and it's a, it's a competition. Interestingly, again, I didn't go to the NCAAs as an individual athlete, the foil team qualified. So I was one of the captains of the team overall, captain of the foil team, and you have to qualify as a team. So there were other teams that had individual athletes, Stanford, Duke, where they had you know, incredible, incredible individual performers, but they couldn't as a team win in a team competition. They just didn't have enough depth. And so when we went to a competition, we had to make sure that we had a full complement of fencers because it was your three against their three. And uh, it was a round robin. So you couldn't hide uh, like, mm-hmm. your, your third fencer is going to fence yeah. their first fencer. Yeah. And so... Uh, we we beat teams with Olympic fencers from around the world on them uh, because we worked so hard with each other to sort it out and talk to each other and how are we gonna how are we gonna take this uh, bout and how are we gonna take this match and so for me it it really was about how does the team win and that was dramatically more important than than anything else. Wow, well you're talking to to two very competitive guys over here. So I'm sure, I'm sure we have some similar mindsets in that regard. Competitive to a fault. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Kind of going back to, you know, some of your business, you went from selling storage for college students to then starting an online insurance marketplace. You know, that that's quite a pivot. You know, I'm sure not many people jump from a college storage business to an online insurance marketplace. Um, how did how did that idea come about? And can you just talk a little bit about that, um, starting that business? Yeah. So yeah, I think you'd asked the question earlier, how did I wind up in physics? So as I was working through, and these stories will all come together, fencing and, and physics and uh, grad school and then the online insurance business. So about two years into undergrad, I realized that, you know, I don't really like spending a bunch of time in the lab. I looked at the people around me, including my roommate, where I would start a a homework problem set and be on problem three after about two hours, he'd show back up and be finished, never even opening a book, like literally deriving from first principles, whatever he needed. He'd finish the problem set and I'd be on problem five. And so like, well, this doesn't really bode well for a for a career in the sciences, uh, either on the experimental side or on the, the theoretical side. So I better start thinking about what else I might do. So I started taking a bunch of other classes uh, as an undergrad. And one of my fencing teammates, a couple of years older than I said, hey, uh, I'm really enjoying working at this tiny boutique investment bank in financial services called Alex Brown in Baltimore. You, know, <laughs> you can come up and talk to us. So as a senior, I, I went up and visited and the uh, connection was was immediate, and I said, "All right, this is something I could I could go do." And so I spent two years as an analyst, learning about stuff I'd never, literally, ever heard of in my life, like building yeah. models, learning about financial markets, learning about merging acquisitions and initial public offerings. Like 
it was a crash course in you know, how the world of finance worked. And it happened to be that the industry we served was financial services and most specifically insurance. So that's, that's one piece of the thread. Uh, then I came out to the West Coast and went to business school out here at Stanford. And I happened to be in the cohort of the graduate school of business that got connected to the beginnings of the internet. So I was out here from 93 to 95 and we were using the Mosaic browser. The Mosaic browser was the, the forerunner of what became Netscape. We were okay. using email every day. Uh, we had the World Wide Web with Yahoo with these blue links, which again, for, for younger listeners have probably never seen that before, but it was literally just static pages with links on them, uh, hyperlinks. And so I was fortunate enough to be set up with a mentor who again, a few years older than I was from the business school, and he was working at a firm that was contracted to build the first set of e-commerce enabling tools, something wow. called secure socket layer encryption. So the idea until that point had been everything that was sent around the internet was open. Well, you can't really have commerce unless you can secure the data. Right. And so this firm, EIT, had been hired to build a toolkit to allow data to be exchanged in an encrypted fashion. So I was going to these tech talks on Fridays and I was hearing about this new capability of encrypting data. And I went back to, to school as a first year and uh, said, wow, hmm, there's gonna be this web commerce capability coming down the pipe. All right, so, so that's another piece of the thread. Uh, that summer I came back to DC, my uh, fiance was uh, working in Washington DC. So I came back and worked with a job so I could be with her for the summer. And the project I got to work on was related to financial markets. All right, so that's final final piece of the thread. So I came back to second year of business school and had insurance, financial markets, e-commerce, and I'd enjoyed the summer experience. And so I had an offer to go back to, to doing what I was doing that summer, which is consulting. And I thought, well, I'm not gonna spend time interviewing for jobs in my second year of business school. Uh, what else What else might I do? So two classmates and I started thinking about what are we going to do at this time? And we decided one, let's do a business plan and two, let's do it to get credit for it. Nice. So we asked, well, what are the things that we know enough about to write a business plan? I said, well, I've worked in insurance and one of the other guys who worked in insurance and, and the third person, a woman had worked in at that summer, a consumer space, consumer marketing. And so the three of us said, all right, consumer marketing, insurance, and at that exact moment in California, there'd been a law passed, Prop 103, I believe, that was requiring auto insurers to roll back what they could charge for insurance rates. Interesting. So again, if you tell an insurance company you can't write based on the risk of a person, but instead write based on some other set of standards, insurance companies are going to not write new policies. And in fact, that's what started to happen. Mm -hmm. So we took all this, put it in a blender and said, hey, Let's create a new insurance company that's going to sell insurance over the internet in California. So that was like how it all came together. And so we started in the fall of 1994 to write a business plan that spelled out this idea. Wow. And we can pick up the story in a minute, but any, any questions on that part? So was far? it a personal line, a commercial line, auto? It's focused on auto insurance because that was the most frequently shopped for insurance. And that was also the most broken experience in California because it was really hard to get quotes at that time and compare them because insurers were pulling out of California. 
Was there anyone else selling online insurance at the time? Not at that time. In oh. fact, uh, when we when we wrote the business plan, you had no insurance carriers yet on the internet either. So, wow. so it was very, very early in the process. So when you guys, when you started this, you know, were you thinking this is going to be big? You know, we are going to change the insurance game. We're going to start this big company or was it like, we're just doing it for credit and it's a, it's a fun hobby that we'll see where it goes. You know, the first semester of that second year in business school, it was about writing the plan and, and getting credit for it. We then had a meeting with our uh, professor who was the sponsor, a guy named George Parker. And uh, Professor Parker called us in just before winter break. And he said, hey, read your business plan. You know, it's pretty academic. Are you guys actually going to do something about it? Yeah. And he turned to- It's one a of challenge. Other- yeah, he turned to one of the other folks on the on the team, and uh, he said no. And he said, "Well, what are you going to do?" And he said, "I'm going to go back to consulting." T- turned to to Raj and said, "You know, what are you going to do?" And she said, uh, "I'm not going to pursue it. I'm going to go back to consulting." And he turned to me and said, "Well, Stephen, what are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, I'm not sure." And he said, "Well, what what else would you do?" I said, "Well, I'd go back to consulting." He said, "Well, look, what do you want to do long term?" And this goes back to what you'd asked me earlier. So by this point, I'd realized it probably wasn't a science thing that I was going to do, but I said, well, I want to help a company grow. I want to be in tech. I want to help a tech company grow. He said, well, huh. And why don't you want to help this tech company grow? I said, well, I've never had a chance to lead a business before. I haven't been a CEO. I haven't managed people in a business setting. Uh, and he said, okay, well, look, if you try this and it fails. Will you be closer to your goal of growing a tech company? Or if you go work for a consulting firm and do some restructuring projects, you know, which, which is going to get you closer? And you know, that was a very insightful question and yeah. pretty obvious what the answer was. So I, I called my fiance, who's now my wife, and I said, hey, uh, can we live on your salary for a bit? Because uh, I think I'm going to start this company. So the second semester of my two years of business school, the second year in business school, I spent that whole time borrowing my classmates' brains, meeting with them, meeting with a number of potential partners in the tech space who could help out, meeting with insurance entities, uh, finding co-founders, and wound up graduating in June, getting married July 2nd, uh, and starting the business all within about a two-week span. And uh, we used just all sorts of uh, people's ideas and help to, to make the business happen. Wow. Wow. Do you think that decision not to be a consultant or go work at a consulting firm, but to run your own business was sort of a set you on a path that you would not have been on otherwise? I think it, it, it was definitely a, a critical moment in, in what has happened since then. It's hard to, to play the what if game, but you can imagine if if I had gone down the traditional route. And at that time, you know, today entrepreneurship, I think coming out of business schools is a lot more accepted. I think I was one of two people that actually pursued an entrepreneurial pathway at that time. And it just wow. wasn't a thing to do. I mean, even in California, I'm in Silicon Valley at the time, you know, that the internet wasn't a thing yet. We talked to a number of traditional venture firms and no one was investing in the internet and no one was interested in insurance in the internet. Wow. So we went and got funding from an insurance entity, interestingly. 
uh, in a financial services firm. But I think it was hugely important to both understanding that you can do it. And there were all sorts of things we got wrong along the way and lots of scary moments too. Uh, but we wound up creating something that really was valuable for consumers and, and really did change a trajectory for an industry, which was really exciting. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about kind of what some of those um, early stages or some of those scary moments maybe that you experienced uh, in growing this business? I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't a walk in the park. You know, could you maybe talk about some of those experiences you had? Yeah, maybe I'll touch on a few. Uh, some are humorous looking back on them. Uh, so one of the very first things that we needed to do was get an office space. Well, no one wanted to rent office space to basically three guys and an idea. And so we had signed a lease. The first rent payment was going to be due. The first paychecks were going to be paid out for the, the small group of us that we'd gotten. It was three of us and, and one other person who had three founders and one employee. And the, the paperwork hadn't been signed yet by the initial investors. And so I remember sitting in our loft department with the other uh, co-founders getting ready to theoretically move into our new space. And we had no money. Like we literally had no money. And so I, I called my wife who was at work and I said, well, can we, can we tap into our savings? Can we tap into, and, and we had that discussion and we said, yes. So while that's happening, I went for a walk. And again, remember this is pre-internet, pre-online banking yeah. and opened up our mailbox. And in the mailbox was a deposit receipt from the bank account. So there had been some wires crossed, even though this, the paperwork hadn't been signed yet, the funds actually had been transferred into the firm's account by one of the uh, investing firms. So we actually had money and you know, then we were able to get off and running, but that was, that was a moment of real, okay, are we willing to, to basically put everything in on the table at, at this early stage? So mm -hmm. that was one moment. Uh, another moment, just a couple weeks later, we hired our first employee who picked up his family. So he left a PhD program in computer science at Penn State and said yes to a job with us. And, you know, when, when you take on that responsibility, like here is someone who is trusting his future with mm -hmm. us yeah. and bringing his family down, you know, that's a moment to, hey, we all looked at each other and said, boy, we, we have to make this work. Like Zhu just quit his PhD program at Penn State because he believes in this idea, this has to happen. Yeah. Uh, and then one kind of humorous moment, uh, we, we, at the time, again, think about just getting a web page on the internet required hundreds of thousands of dollars. We had to buy servers, we had to buy database software, we had to buy Silicon Graphics machines, Sun uh, Microsystems OS, uh, Oracle database, like this was, this was major capital. And yet there was no place to run it. We didn't have a data center. So we wired up the office and the only room we could lock in the office was in the upstairs second floor. And that was the only room as well that had a heater in it. So, so we put the equipment in there, wired it up, closed the door. And of course the heater would turn on. And so we had to also put a two ton air conditioning unit in there. And we carried that thing up the stairs and put the hose through the front of the office out of the front of the street. So the last person to leave at night had to take the, I think it was like a 10 gallon uh, water where the condenser would drop all the water out of the AC. And he had to drop, he had to pull it out and dump it into the toilet in the room next door so that 
the air oh conditioning God. all night. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we, had, we had a lot of, uh, of moments of, well, we just got to get it done. How are we going to solve this problem? And, and that happened over and over again uh, along the way. Wow. But problem solving is a, kind of the fabric of any successful businessman, right? You have to be a problem solver. Yeah, and be pragmatic. Be be yeah. a problem. Be pragmatic, and you won't always have all the answers. We we were trying to talk to insurance carriers in those early days, and most insurance carriers weren't thinking about the internet. And when we did get to talk to them, they certainly weren't were not interested in working with a startup. And these were brands that were well established: a MetLife, a John Hancock, a Traveler. Yeah. And so we tapped into the network that we'd had to try to just get a meeting. And in one of those first ever online insurance conferences in Chicago. We had rented a, a suite so we could take people from the conference up to the suite. We borrowed our chairman, a guy named Terry Van Gilder, really well, very well respected in the industry and really relied on his credibility to, to tell these insurance carriers about the fact that this was going to happen and that he believed in it. And that was hugely important to us mm -hmm. uh, to get the ball rolling. And, and without that help, and we never would have even gotten the first carrier to take a chance on us. Yeah, well, I mean, you guys, Solved a lot of problems, it seems like. If you fast forward a little bit, um, this is the company that you end up selling to Intuit, right? That's right. Yeah, we, we sold it to Intuit. And again, the right place, right time, where Intuit saw this move from desktop software to the internet coming uh -huh. and building out something called the Quicken Financial Network. Eventually became Quicken.com and uh, products like Mint came out of that group. And so we had a chance to go meet with Intuit. One of my classmates from business school was at Intuit. And I called him and said, hey, we've realized in talking to insurance carriers that it's very unlikely they're gonna work with us. And the idea had moved from building our own insurance carrier to being a marketplace okay. for insurance carriers products. And uh, they were all asking us, how will you bring us customers? Like we're big, State Farm, MetLife, John Hancock, Travelers, um, and you're tiny. How, how will you help us grow? And I realized we needed a consumer brand. And so had talked to Amex and Fidelity and Schwab and Microsoft and Intuit and Intuit had the Quicken brand. So one of my friends was on, on the Quicken product and said, hey, we're, we're, we'd love to come talk to you. And he said, great, come on out. So one of the other co-founders and I flew to California and the meeting quickly went from tell us about the idea to a dinner at a, an Italian restaurant in downtown Palo Alto, where the questions started being asked, how much money have you raised? And yeah. who's on the board? And uh, what are your plans for the future? And right after dinner, I turned to Mark, one of the co-founders and said, hey, Mark, uh, those aren't questions to ask us about, mm. you know, are we gonna work together? Those are questions of maybe they wanna buy us. And yeah. so uh, after some back and forth, a couple months later, we, we joined into it and continued to build the idea within within the company there. Nice. And how old are you at this point? Uh, 26. Jeez, I just turned 27. I haven't sold a company. <laughs> well, you get on it, will you? What's wrong with you, boy? Not um, yet, not yet. Uh, a lot about you know, being in, or truly being in the right place at the right time. And, uh, and then at, at Intuit, I realized how much I didn't know. So one yeah. of those things going back to this growth mindset concept is to be an entrepreneur, you have to realize there are things you don't know, but you also have to kind of put them off to the side and say, well, look, when we uncover one of those things, we'll just go figure it out. Uh, and you know, Michael, I think you were saying that too, you know, just go figure it out. But actually I found out that Intuit 
had a whole bunch of things they'd already figured out. And so I started to meet with all these amazing, amazing leaders, Scott Cook and Bill Campbell and Bill Harris, and, and eventually, gosh, Steve Bennett, and uh, the, uh, one of the last people I worked with, a guy named Brad Smith, and a bunch of people uh, over time where you can go learn from people who've done it before. And Scott Cook had this saying, you know, let's not reinvent the wheel, let's go find the best wheel makers. And it's so true, like, let's go make new mistakes. Like it's, it's so easy yeah. to, you have to reinvent everything. But in fact, there are certain things that work in an area that, that I really get to hone my craft on at Intuit was, how do you do consumer research? How do you listen to customers uh, and really understand what they're asking you about? How do you lead people and build teams and operate at scale? And those are all things that, that I had my learning curve dramatically accelerated on and again, made a lot of mistakes along the way and was forgiven for those mistakes. Basically when people said, yeah, you made that error, but that's an investment in the future. Uh, and so that that was hugely impactful for me to have that formative experience. And I was at Intuit for a dozen years. So I really learned a ton uh, post the sale of the online insurance business to them. Wow. Was there, was it difficult to go from a company that you founded to then working for a much bigger, you know, company like Intuit, was there any kind of hesitation of, you know, it quote unquote, being your baby that you were letting go and, and giving the reins to someone else? The, no, interestingly, I mean, I, I felt that the reason that we were joining forces with Intuit was because they knew things we didn't and they had capabilities we didn't have. And so it, right. it really felt like we were selling the company to help it succeed versus Know, giving up. And so that that was true. I think the hardest part actually was about five years after we sold the business to Intuit, Intuit shifted strategic uh, focus away from the consumer business and towards small business. And so actually, I had to shut the business down by selling it to our biggest competitor. I think that was the uh -huh. most difficult moment. And I had to go talk to the team that we built, you know, basically handcrafted uh, to, to go after this mission and tell them, you know, I'm sorry, but we're not going to get to, to continue what we were doing. And that that was a really low moment. But no, being being part of a larger entity, you you learn how to stay entrepreneurial. You learn how to continue to push to make things better. And you learn that scale isn't bad. Scale can really help you get stuff done. And uh, finding ways to keep both those things true is, is really important. Yeah. You, you talk about scale. Um, I think, you know, that's obviously you know, hugely important if you're growing a company that you want to be impactful to, um, you know, as many consumers as possible, you know, once a company grows to the size where you can't just manage individuals, but you have all these different teams, um, as a leader, you know, how do you manage a culture or ensure that it's consistent, you know, top to bottom, having a business that is scaled to the size where it's not just you and your co-founders and you're controlling that culture, but you have you know, hundreds, thousands of employees where you have to create this consistent culture, um, you know, in order to be successful. Yeah. All right. So I told your daddy had a great question earlier. Now, now, Max, you get the great question. It's one, so one. You're one, one. Okay. All right. That is exceptionally hard, but there's some, there's some techniques that I learned from my time at Intuit that I, that I've continued to use. So one of them is, you go direct. So when you get to the point where you have multiple levels in the organization, and multiple can be two, like at the point when I can't actually physically you know, manage everybody directly, 
you have to go all the way to the front lines and make people feel comfortable through your interaction with them that they won't hide bad news. So you, know, you can't fix anything if you don't know what's going wrong. And so it's really important to what used to be called wander, manage by wandering around. And in, in the current COVID world, you can't do that quite as easily because you can't just go bump into people. You gotta find ways to get that information to flow. Uh, so I would go visit the call centers and talk to the customer care reps. I would talk to customers. I would talk to our engineers. I would talk to our designers. And that way I knew that I would try to deliver key messages and, and get shared vision on what we were trying to accomplish with the leadership team. But I could also go down and talk to the folks on the front lines and find out, hey, what are they hearing? What's going on for them? And then you could figure out where messages were getting stuck. And so that that's a lesson that I've carried through to today, which is build a culture of feedback. If people are uncomfortable telling you when something's wrong, uh, you're not going to know what's really going on in your business, in your team, in your school. So, so that's piece one. And two, you can't just rely reactively on people coming to tell you. You have to go seek it out. And how you show up in those conversations is, you know, and you earlier joked like, hey, you know, the, the boss or the boss of the boss, like when you show up and people know who I am, you know, I'm senior person X or CEO or founder, they might not feel comfortable unless I've made them comfortable telling me what's really happening. Right. And so that's critical to be able to show up and say, look, I'm no different from you. I want the best for our customers. I want the best for our club. I want the best for our company. And that feedback has to somehow get to you. And so you can do that informally through those conversations. You can do it formally through dashboards. You know, collect that feedback and at scale. So at Intuit and at GoDaddy, you know, millions and ultimately tens of millions of customers mm -hmm. all over the world. So there was no way to get to every single location. So you had to have a mechanism to collect that feedback, aggregate it up without being filtered. Uh, so you know, we had a saying, you know, bad news travels fast. So to make sure we hear what's happening from an employee perspective, a customer perspective, and a partner perspective so that we can do something about it. Well, that's a, a, an important attribute to have as a leadership, right, is the personality or whatever that where people feel comfortable telling you what's wrong, the bad news. It's all easy to talk about the successes and the sales and what went right. It's a harder conversation to tell the boss Here's a, we got a problem. Yeah, and how you react when someone tells you that. This was one of those early lessons from the online insurance days. I went to that online conference, the online insurance conference I talked about in Chicago. And we, we knew we were the first. We knew we were way ahead of everyone else in just working on this idea. And we show up at the conference and there's a company claiming to have already done everything that we hadn't yet gotten to. And... I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, what is happening? How could this, like, wow, we're, we're just getting our servers stood up and this group's already claiming they're doing quoting and binding and paying for stuff. Like, how could that be? That's, that's amazing and terrible at the same time. And I called the team, we talked about it and we found out a little bit later that wasn't exactly uh, the case. And so I'd always realized that maintaining a pretty even keel, whether the news was great or terrible was important, but this was a very stark example of, we could have reacted in a way that, you know, the next time someone heard bad news, they weren't gonna say anything, but in this case, hey, let's just talk about it and then let's go dig in and see if it's mm -hmm. really happening. Mm -hmm. And so I, I find it super important to make sure when people come and say, this is the best thing that's happened, or this is the worst things that happened. I'm like, wow, thank you so much for telling us. 
But what do we learn? Like, how do we know that's the case? What are we going to do about it now? If it's great news, how do we keep it going? If it's terrible news, you know, what ideas do you have to fix it? And are we certain? And how you react is critical to whether or not someone's going to tell you the next time. You can imagine if someone came to a leader and gave them bad news and the leader goes ballistic, uh, the likelihood someone else, when they hear that story, is going to go say something is going wrong the next time? Probably not. So, so you're in control of how you react. And that is part of the culture of the firm that you're setting from the top. Hey, Dad, I was going to the store to get you some beers for Taco Tuesday because I know you love a good beer with your Taco Tuesday, and they're all out. So I just went out and had to get a sponsorship for the pod, and I think it might be 10 times better. What's, it, what, what's the new sponsor? Ale Industries. Oh, I know Ale Industries. It's one of the best breweries in the world, okay. and it's right here in Oakland, California. Yep. Also a sponsor of the Oakland Roots. I saw that because if you look at their very cool cans, it's got a roots imprinted on it. Oh, yeah. And that beer actually has 5.10% alcohol. Yeah. But, you know, I'm a beer guy. I know you know, are. Right? And that's my drink of choice when I'm drinking alcoholic beverage, an adult beverage. And uh, I'm probably uh, different than you because I know the difference between ale and beer. What is it? Ale has a different fermentation process than beer. Wow. They're both yummy. You are just so knowledgeable. Well, this episode... Here I am. (laughs) And Ale. Okay. Well, this episode is brought to you by Ale Industries, and let's get back to the show. Enjoy. You know, I think kind of like going off of what you said with, you know, the ability to be approachable to people, um, was that something that you kind of noticed that you had at a young age or early on in your career as a leader? Or was that something, I mean, obviously the way you speak about it now is extremely knowledgeable and out of a book of leadership. You know, is that something that you've just accumulated over the years of being a leader or are some of these attributes just things that at a young age you identified in yourself and over time they've just been refined to the level that they're at now? Yeah, it's great. This goes back to that you know, nature versus nurture question. So I think uh, leadership can absolutely be learned. Uh, and at the same time, you have to play to your strengths. So while you know we talked earlier, like I'm competitive. And at the same time, I also want to react as, as calmly as I can in any situation, because that's going to, while you're amped up, like, wow, you know, fight or flight is definitely there. If you right. can take it down to just take a couple more beats to think through, okay, what's what's the next thing we're going to do based on what we just learned? Right. And so I think early on in my career, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it in the mm-hmm. way I do now, but there was definitely the beginnings of that uh, that way of reacting in that mode. And over time, it's gotten more and more clear. And again, the more you practice something, uh, the more you're confident in that skill. And then eventually you move from uh, this concept of you're unconsciously incompetent. You don't know what you don't know to then you, you're aware, but it takes real work, which is called consciously competent. And ultimately you're what's called unconsciously competent. You can just do it. You don't yeah. have to think about it. And your natural reaction is, is quote, the one you want. And so going through that cycle takes number just a huge number of repetitions. Yeah. So let's take it a little out of the business context. 
when you're watching your son's soccer match or when you're watching your other kid, the Roots <laughs> games, yes. are you able to maintain that even keel, that steady state, success and failure or, or cousins? It's hard. It is hard for sure. You know, sports are, are you know, a great metaphor for you know, in a very short period of time, you know, wins and losses and, and every tackle and every missed opportunity. Uh, I would say it took me a while when watching our son playing to, to get to the point where I could react reasonably even keeled. And my wife was brilliant on this. She said, you know, let's get you a job. Let's give you the video camera so that, you know, you can make sure that you're, you're tracking the action and that's smart. We can watch. So she did a great job of making sure that I had something to focus on. And over time, again, it was a learned skill. Like when we watch sports, we're so passionate, right? We want to get into it and jump up and down. And, you know, when I watch Carolina sports, I absolutely let loose uh, because, you know, I can, but in scenarios where, you know, I have a role, I'm a dad or I'm you know, a leader at the roots, like you have to be able to, to watch with passion, but also at the same time, recognize that people are looking to your reactions That's right. uh, to, to respond. And so I think that's easy to say, it's a heck of a lot harder to do. Uh, I think I'm probably still on the learning journey there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, last year after, after the roots lost in the final of the, the NISA championship, you know, we had lots of opportunities to, to tie the game. We had lots of opportunities to score, had some mistakes, like two mistakes led to two goals. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, I was incredibly proud of getting through a COVID season. The team had sacrificed everything. We, they lived in a hotel in LA for a month, actually in Orange County for a month to avoid the smoke so we could train, like all of this stuff that they had done to even get to that point. Yeah. And I, I was very authentic and very sincere when I told the team, look, I am so proud of y'all. Like if we had won, it'd be you know, a storybook ending. Uh, right. But look at where we started and look where we finished. And, and you guys should feel incredibly proud of the work you put in to get to this point and feel really great about each other. And so I think I've definitely gotten to the point now where I feel better about my ability to, to enjoy the moment and, mm -hmm. and try to be a part of the moment while also being my part within the club. And Roots haven't given you anything to do yet, uh, like a camera <laughs> or <laughs> chart the passes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll, I'll combine the story a minute ago of the the wandering around and learning stuff with the Roots. So during the home games the last few years, I generally go wander the crowd nice. and go talk to folks in various sections. I'll go talk to the the vendors. I'll go find visiting fans to sit with. And just see what they're feeling and how's it going and how long are the lines for beer and yeah. uh you know are, are there too many people standing in an area can they find seats is there a that you know are people finding the food they need are the vendors selling the stuff they brought so all of that for me is is something that i've realized that i watch parts of the game but it's just as important for me to go be in the stadium and, and interact with the folks that are there as it is to to watch the game i can watch the highlights later yeah if I need to. Yeah. Well, well, next time you're wandering around, please, please find this guy because he will probably be going crazy. I mean, he'll actually probably have a camera as his mechanism yes. of distraction, but I'm sure he would welcome a nice conversation with you um, as another form of distraction. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we've talked about it briefly for a bit, but about your involvement with the roots, we can fast forward a bit for the sake of time. 
you know, I mentioned in the intro, you're the chairman of the roots. You've done, we talked a lot about your business resume and we could go on for hours about that. I was joking with my dad. You could probably be playing golf a few times a week, drinking Arnold Palmer's without a care in the world, but here you are in the sports ownership world. You know, what made you want to get into that and how did this all come about? Yeah. When, so I, uh, been gone from Intuit, had been the CEO of another startup, uh, left that one, uh, been the CEO of another startup and sold that one to GoDaddy. And I'd been at GoDaddy from 2012 to 2019. And I'd, I'd gotten this call, actually, uh, the first interaction was via LinkedIn. I got a LinkedIn note from the founding group at The Roots. And uh, the note said, hey, we noticed that you're an entrepreneur, you like soccer, and you've done some stuff in the social impact world we'd love to talk to you about this concept of building a purpose-driven team in Oakland. I'm like, yeah. great, happy to talk. Like anytime an entrepreneur reached out, I'm happy to talk to them. And so got on the call in the, the spring of 2018 and talked with the founding group. It was Benno and uh, Benny and Mike and Idris. And they said, we've got this idea. I'm like, great, let's talk about it some more. And at the end of the conversation, I'm like, hey, that's a really cool idea. I've got some questions for you. Uh, and if you can come back with some answers to them, you know, let's talk again. Mm-hmm. And so a month later, you know, they got me on the phone again. I think we might have met actually at that point in uh, in our offices in San Francisco for GoDaddy. And I was like, wow, this is risky, but this is something that combines passions that I've had for a long time. Yeah. And I'd love to see if I can help make it happen. So I remember talking to my colleagues at GoDaddy, some of those senior leaders at a dinner. I'm like, hey guys. I've got this really amazing idea. I'm gonna go write a seed check along with some other folks to, to get this uh, Roots team off the ground. And they were like, what? <sighs> what, what, what and, and they just- yeah. Have you lost your mind? <laughs> yeah, more or less. Like, no, no, it's great. I mean, I, I love soccer. And they're like, okay, great. So, uh, so got involved in the summer of 2018. Uh, two other investors and I then wrote slightly bigger checks in the winter of 2018 and we still at this point had no full-time employees right so uh, the question was where would we play what league would we play in when would we start playing and so all those questions were starting to become very very tangible Mm -hmm. and i realized that if i wanted to do something in pro sport uh, this was the chance Mm -hmm. and talked with my wife uh walked into to work one day and talk to the GoDaddy CEO and said, hey, Scott, um, I'd like to go do something with the roots. And we talked about it for a bit. And I said, and by the way, my team at GoDaddy is ready to pick up for me. Like they're set, they're they're raring to go. Yeah. And so there'll be no missed beats there. So left February 28th from GoDaddy and March 1st started at the roots. And started working on fundraising and negotiating the agreement with Laney to play uh, football in their football stadium, Uh, working on what league were we gonna be in with the the founding team. And so I got really excited about taking the next phase of my career and and going back to learning something new and bringing all of the skills I'd learned in the business world and, and just calling people and asking, okay, I don't know all these things, can you help? And yeah. just asking for, for input and, and advice along the way. And uh, that's worked out well. I mean, it's been now over two years of volunteering as not just full time, but 
all of my time uh, yeah. to, to the roots. And it's been amazing. I've, I've really appreciated the response from the community. I think building this purpose-driven club has allowed us to move up to the USL championship this last year, even in the midst of COVID. It's allowed us to you know, shortly, hopefully announce an amazing uh, sponsor for this upcoming a uh, couple of seasons and, and jerseys that are going to be killer when they come out in a couple of days. Uh, I, I may or may not have taken photos in said jerseys today. <laughs> and actually, probably by the time this episode comes out, those jerseys, maybe day of the, this episode comes out, the jerseys will be released. So it could be divine timing here. Connect the dots there. And you know, all of that has been remarkable and really supported by the response in Oakland. And yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not from Oakland. I've been learning about the community. I've been spending a bunch of time there and you know, COVID has made that really hard. Like we have not been able to be with people now since March 7th of last year, like March 7th, 2020 was our last home game. Right. And people have been home for over a year. It's, it's really hard mm-hmm. to be in a situation where it's all about the experience and the community and yet you can't be together. So we've had to yeah. spend almost a year plus figuring out how do you make an impact using your platform on social? How do you make an impact where you can get out in the community safely? And I think the players have been a part of that and the staff has been a part of that to, to try to give back. And uh, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing journey and it's really still incredibly early. Yeah. We're broadcasting from Oakland today. Yeah. Uh, and as an Oakland resident, I've been amazed as how the community has embraced the roots and I'm trying to figure out whether it's because you're such a unique club in terms of your social consciousness, uh, your giving to the community, or whether you're in a soccer crazy city, or whether your timing was impeccable with the Warriors and the Raiders kind of exiting and you guys entering. Maybe it's a combination of all those things. Yeah, it's one of those equations that I think is is too complicated to to be able to have a real answer to it. But I do think it's about you know, being authentic. I mean, yeah. saying this is there there is no uh, level of pretense. It's like yeah. we're trying to make things happen. We don't always get it right, but we are trying to make an impact. We talk about things that are important to us that we think are important to the community. We're engaged with nonprofits, both in soccer and outside of soccer. In in the town. You know, I think our players get that and are investing of themselves, both online and offline. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think that certainly Oakland feels pretty hard put upon when the Warriors picked up and went to San Fran and, and the Raiders picked up and went to Vegas. Like that's not awesome for the town. And so I think we were fortunate from a timing perspective uh, and we also were very clear from day one that we cared deeply about racial justice and you know, that came to the fore in, in 2020 as well. So it wasn't just the COVID lockdown. Mm-hmm. You had George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor and a series of events that occurred throughout the year that that we had to, as a club, respond to first internally and have discussions with our players, our staff, most of whom are, are people of color and say, well, what is the right way? What's the authentic way for us? not just to say something, but how do we use our platform to do something? And, and that's where the justice match came about. You know, let, yeah. Let's go play soccer, use that to raise money and let's put that money back into the community. So, so those are things that came out of a, a belief that if we do the work uh, that you know, people will support the club. And, and so far that's been true. 
And the roots are a member of Common Goal. The roots are a member of Common Goal. That's Can we talk a little bit I'm about a that? I'm a member of Common Goal member, as well. Right? Yeah. 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 Well, Max, why did, you, why did you join Common Goal? What was interesting about that to you? Uh, I've been following it actually for a few years, ever since I believe it was Juan Mata um, and a couple other players started it. And, you know, I just think the entire idea of it is kind of just encompasses what this world needs more of is, you know, people being more selfless. And I think we all have a little bit that we can give. And if we all give a little bit, it makes a big impact. And so when the opportunity came about to get involved, it, it was a no brainer, really. Just knowing that you're part of a, a greater community that's working towards a common goal. I didn't even mean to <laughs> plug the name. I actually did not mean to plug the name there. But you know, you see the work that they do and you see where that money goes. It's not just money that you donate and you have no idea where it's impacting. You see how this sport is really driving um, change throughout the world. And just to be a part of that community, I think was an opportunity that I just was a no brainer. I wanted to be a part of it. And I'm, I'm excited to see where the partnership goes with the club as well. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you signed up. It's, it's an opt-in program. So players and staff can, can choose to take part and we're delighted when they do. And the club uh, helped really through Mike Geddes, uh, yeah. chief officer, to drive the anti-racist project that that we and the folks in Angel City and the Chicago Fire and the American Outlaws all banded together and said, "Okay, look, we, we need to tackle this problem head-on in soccer." And we continue to see episodes around the world. And can we create a curriculum that that attacks that mm. from the pro ranks all the way down to the youth ranks? So that's something we're passionate about and helped help catalyze. Yeah, we, we've taken you for quite a bit of, of your evening. I'll have one last question before we get to our ending little segment, if that's cool with you. Do you um, have a last question? Too? Do you go, if that's okay with Steven, is it okay if he gets, okay. You know, as two residents of Oakland and you're someone who um, did not grow up around here, but you've obviously spent a lot of time here. You've gotten to see, you've gotten to see the community come out in support of a sports team, which I feel like really gets to show what a community is all about. You know, what are some things that you've noticed or embraced about the city of Oakland in your time that you've been here and been with the roots? Yeah, there's real pride. There's real pride in the town. I think that the you know, the outside view of, of Oakland can be negative, right? The, the headlines uh, haven't been kind, but there are so many people that care deeply and give back of their time they are willing to raise uh, a hand to lift someone else up and to help. And they do that, I think, across the different factions, the different geographies, the different races, the different genders in the town. And you know, for me, you know, that is a beautiful thing. Like if, if we can keep tapping into one of the most diverse places in the US, I mean, the population comes from both socioeconomic diversity, racial diversity. If we can find ways to bridge that gap and when, when I go to the Roots games and I'm in the crowd and, and looking at folks, you've got young and old, you've got wealthy, you've got uh, kids who came in, yeah, kids who came in uh, because we were able to get tickets to their local school. You've got uh, black, brown, white immigrants. Uh, I mean, it's just an amazing amalgamation. And that's, that is beautiful to me. So that, that's been something that has really struck me. And I think that's a strength. That's a strength. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you put that great. Dad, your, your final question. Yes. Thanks, Steve. Uh, 
Final question. I'm blown away at how good the Roots social media is, how good their merchandising is, uh, how good they are at putting out Oakland Roots stuff, whether it's what they're doing, who they're playing, recruiting. I, mean, I think you're in the top 1% of that, of all pro sports franchises. Wow. NBA, yeah. I really do. I mean, look at your social media presence. Is this a question or... I'm getting to it. It's a lead, it's a lead up. No, there's a there's a buzz about the roots. People want to wear your merch. You've done a fantastic job. But what I don't see is I don't see any local media coverage. And maybe I'm missing it. But you're a professional soccer team. You're a, one of two pro teams in Oakland, one of the bigger cities in this country. You're never going to open up the San Francisco Chronicle and read about a roots result or a roots higher. Don't hear it on KNBR or sports talk. Doesn't seem like you're covered by the sports media. And I'm wondering why not. Yeah. Uh, Well, the media business has changed a lot. When you look at even the total column inches for the quakes uh, in San Jose and any local papers, it's shrunk a lot over the last Mm -hmm. couple of years. And so I think we need to earn that coverage. I think that what will happen over time is we get people to continue to come out to games. And this year we'll have all of our games broadcast on one of the ESPN networks. Uh, Having announcements like the Marshawn announcement certainly Mm -hmm. turned some heads. And I saw some coverage of that in the local papers, which we appreciated. Uh, The local uh, TV affiliates have had us on from time to time. And I think as we start playing games again, as, as we continue to make an impact, I think we'll deserve coverage and the coverage will come. So again, we're working hard. I think we're still a startup. So we we can't go out and say, you must cover us. I think we have to earn that. So over the next couple of years, I hope that as uh, people talk about us, as you know, we produce results both on the field and off the field, and we have people who want to hear what's going on with the roots, they'll not only come to our social media and various other uh, channels that, that we are writing content, but they'll come to lots of other places too. So I think we've been fortunate. We've we've in one sense punched above our weight with some of the coverage we've gotten uh, internationally. And what we need to do now locally is is create reasons why the local media would want to cover us. And it's because the community wants to hear. So I think that's that's what we have to go do to earn that coverage. Yeah, I, I think it's coming. I'm optimistic. Okay, last thing. This is our segment that we do to end with every one of our guests. It is called, what are you eating, reading, preaching, and plugging? So we'll start out with what are you eating? So that could be something that you're cooking in the kitchen over there at the Aldridge household, maybe some takeout that you like in the area. Um, There's some food that you're feeling right now that you could share with the listeners. Yeah. So uh, a friend of mine recommended a South Indian, uh, what's called, I think a either ghost kitchen or dark kitchen. I'm not sure which of those is the right term, but it's a, it's a place that only does delivery and it is unbelievably great. And uh, so we, we ordered last week, a huge number of containers, way too much food for just my wife and me. And, uh, and we're still eating that. So South Indian food, we're huge fans of ethnic food. And we were just saying the other night, we got to go find another Ethiopian restaurant. Oh. A couple of great ones in Oakland. Uh, so, so, so right now, uh, Southern Indian cooking is on the menu, and uh, we we love spicy food, and uh, we'll be uh, frequenting restaurants in and around uh, 
spice town, so to speak. Uh, nice. so South Indian at the moment. Nice. You you may have just inspired my dinner choice. Okay. Next is what are you reading? Is there um, you know a book, an article, uh, some piece of literature that you you know want to share with people that you're reading right now? Yeah. So it's interesting. I I was reading a ton last year in the in the early days of the pandemic. I was ripping through books, and recently I've been so busy with the roots and roots growth uh, that by the time I finish work. I'm ready to sit down with Allison, have dinner, uh, relax, and then uh, do a meditation and go to sleep. So my reading has gone down dramatically. The thing that I am doing, and maybe this is considered reading, is I'm trying to learn Spanish. So I'm reading Spanish every day through Duolingo. Nice. And I knew no Spanish, like I knew hola, maybe. And, And I've now been doing it every day for, I think, up to 400 and something days. And while I'm not anywhere near proficient and I'm super afraid to have conversations, one of those learning mindsets, I'm starting to try to use it every now and then. So uh, so I'm reading Spanish and trying to use it sparingly, uh, but that's the only way you get better is, is trying something. I know I'm not good, but I'm never gonna get good if I don't try. That's awesome. Would you plug Duolingo? I would plug Duolingo. I've heard good things. Mm-hmm. So I've yeah. heard good things. They, they've been, since I started using the app over a year ago, they've continued to make it more engaging, They've made it uh, better in terms of now you can speak the language into your iPhone uh, or I'm assuming they have other phones too. I have an iPhone and it gives you feedback in your pronunciation, which is awesome. And they're starting to make it less rote and it's really getting to the point where I realize, oh, I was a little bit too easy before. And now yeah. as it's making you really construct sentences and follow conversation, I'm like, wow, that's what I need to get better. I mm-hmm. need to do more of that. Yeah. Maybe you should check it out. I would like to. Yeah. Um, okay. Third, what are you uh, preaching? Words of wisdom, um, any lasting advice uh, for any, you know, budding entrepreneurs or just anyone out there listening? Yeah. The, the phrase that I have been saying a lot the last few years is start before you're ready. I saw that. That, that the, you know, as a, as a human, we are, conditioned in one sense to learn, like the whole learning mindset, like our brains from an early age are built to take feedback in when something doesn't work, figure out why and try it again and do it better the next time. Mm -hmm. So we're wired to learn, but we're also wired for fear, right? That fight or flight. And so uh, for me, I realized this probably going back uh, over a decade ago, like we're in this constant state of tension between fear of failure and ability to learn. And if you can find a way to just eke out the ability to learn ahead of the fear, you're going to continue on this journey that's going to be amazing. Yeah. And so therefore, you know, when I think about this, start before you're ready, you know you don't know it, but if you don't start, you're not going to know it ever. Yeah. I think that's that is a great motto. I will be using that for sure. Okay, lastly, what are you plugging besides Duolingo. It's, um, you know, South Indian food. (laughs) Yeah. Besides Duolingo (laughs) and South Indian food, is there anything that you want to plug um, that you have going out there? Maybe this sports franchise that you might have ownership in. Yeah. So um, I would say, you know, we've got our first home game on June 19th. So boy, I love for that stadium to be as full as we can make it uh, while still being safe. And we, I think we'll have two thirds capacity, maybe even more than that, depending upon what happens with the 
the potential of June 15th being open. Right. CDC came out today and said you can be outside uh, without a mask and they recommend masks when you're in a crowd, but you can still be outside and be pretty safe, they said. So we'd love for the stadium to be rocking on June 19th. We're going to make it an amazing, amazing home opener. It'll be the first home game we've played since March of 2020. We're playing against SAC. Like what could be better? 5-1-0 versus 9 one yeah. First Roots home game of the season. It's going to be amazing. And we'd love to have that stadium full and, and come out to the pre-party ahead of time. So June 19th, you know, please, please come out and support the, the squad and uh, cheer for Oakland. Can you get yeah. us tickets? <laughs> I can't. I, can't. I, I think we'll be okay in that regard. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stephen, I, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time. I had an amazing time speaking with you, learning more about your story. I think you have so much knowledge, wisdom, your perspective on leadership, entrepreneurship. I admire. And I, this was awesome. This was seriously great. And, and for our listeners who didn't research Stephen Aldrich like we did, they should know that uh, we just scratched the surface today. Yeah. There's so much. I've got pages and pages yeah. of notes. We, we have a lot of stuff that we did not cover, but we yeah. do not want to keep you waiting all night. I, 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 we didn't cover a couple of decades of your life <laughs> and your business exploits, but what we did cover was really enlightening. We do appreciate your time. You are uh, inspirational and a real doer. And uh, I, I learned a lot just researching you, never mind hearing your wisdom today. So much appreciated your time. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks y'all for having me on. And again, I'm, I'm excited about where we're headed as, as a franchise. And, you know, collectively, we've, we've got some amazing things we'll get done this year. And again, we really are just getting started. So we appreciate uh, being able to tell the story. And it's really not about me. You know, at this stage is how do we build this club for the future. And, and Max, appreciate that uh, you're doing this and you're learning and appreciate what you're doing for us on the field too. Of course. I will see Thanks. you soon. All right. Take care, y'all. Thanks, Steve. Enjoy. Good night. Good night.